you look fine. Turn them around, Robert. I don't think, I mean, I can, Doc, but I, I know it doesn't matter because I've had them both. Um, okay, let's, let's, let's start. Any, any prayer requests for tonight? This is strange. I, this is the first time that I can remember, I don't even know, from the beginning, this is the first time Connie's not been online when I've come online. She's not here. That is rare. And um, Melody's not here, so I hope I hope they're okay. Connie's probably with her her, mo her, her mother-in-law's funeral arrangements. Yeah, yeah. Probably yeah. she went to uh, El Paso to yeah. attend the funeral. Yeah, yeah. Any any prayer requests? Can you turn your light on? Hi, I would like to pray for my son, Brendan Olahan, and he's kind of having a hard time with um, a little bit of anxiety and worry about the future and so forth. He's a, a senior in high school, trying to figure out what he wants to do. So I'd like to say some prayers for him. Is this Michelle? Yes. Yeah. Glad to do it. Glad to do. What's his name, Michelle? Brandon. 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 Yeah. How old is he? Seventeen. Seventeen. Tough age. Tough age. Let's start. <coughs> name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you. Um, for the gift of your spirit through this day, for all the ways you are present. Um, we're entering into a, um, a really important time in our readings um, because we're, we're in Lent and moving up with Dante through Purgatory and Eliot's gonna throw something difficult at us tonight and it's, um, my hope is that it will make things heavier and and easier for all of us it's a um, it's a real revelation about some of the mysteries at the center of our church and um, I want to offer a special expression of gratitude for the all of the all of you guys being here because it, it's amazing that learning makes means that much to you to be doing this particularly since it's related to our faith but let a blessing be upon all the work that we're doing. Um, help us to live it. Um, we're asked to live the Eucharist, and I believe in a in um, as strong a way that we're asked to live what we learn, to just not leave it in our heads. That makes for burdens all the time. So, um, graces always carry burdens. Let all the graces that are being given to us in this learning, um, let's not forget that they're graces and um, we wouldn't see these things if, we, um, if our eyes weren't being opened and there weren't a cost to what we're doing. So give all of us the strength to make um, what we're learning real, particularly when it has costs, and bring it to the world to be not afraid, to have courage, but to bring 
um, better hearts to everything we do bring to the world. Um, ask a special prayer for Brendan and um, um, all those who love him. Um, high school age, the, that transition between high school and college is a tough age. It's, it's a time when young men begin to test out the world to find their feet and it's a time of real uncertainty and, and so many so often kids who are proud and don't give a thought about it um, find themselves in deep waters so guide him um, let him feel your protection and where he isn't aware of it um, bring him um, um, to you um, help him to find his way so that he can stand with you um, with a great faith and a real courage, a real love, anything he does do, whatever he goes on to do. And um, help those who love him have quiet hearts and trust. But let our prayers help him. And watch over this young man. Um, manhood is not easy in the world we live in. It's never been easy, but it's, I think it's particularly hard in our world. So we, um, I'd like to offer a prayer for um, Melody and her family. Um, she is so in earnest about all that we do. And for Connie and her uh, mother-in-law Jackie. Um, once again, um, hear our prayers, please, to receive her mother-in-law into your kingdom. Um, wash away her sins. Let our prayers help. Um, and... Um, Give Connie a quiet heart, and she has us with her. Help her to know that. Um, let her know that deeply, <laughs> with some humor in it, too. Please, please, um, let there be a humor in it. We offer these prayers in your name, you, Lord, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, um, a couple of things. One, I was going to mention... The, the, uh, that talk series, I'm, I'm reluctant to call it a lecture series, but a talk series. You know that Father Flynn is concerned that the COVID peop, um, uh, virus is keeping people from church, from Mass. Um, I have a sense from our own church that slowly people are coming back, but the churches are, you know, they're not close to where they were before. <clears throat> and it will probably take some time. Anyway, there is this talk series going on every, um, usually a, a Sunday or a Tuesday night. We will plan to meet next week and, and start the Paradiso. Just so you know, looking ahead, I've been thinking about the Paradiso, or I mean uh, the Purgatory, and what I would like to do at the beginning of next class is try to do a general summary because there's so much that Dante's covering. We're gonna, I'm gonna race through the end of the Purgatorio tonight um, so we can move on. And, um, but I wanna come back to try to pull some of the most important things together because there is so much going on. Um, just so you know, if I were teaching this in college, we could spend probably a month of classes, you know, two hours, three times a week, doing the Purgatorio. Um, there's just so much there. We, I, I don't think it's wise to do that here in this setting, but I'm 
I'm okay. I'm glad to have done what we what we are doing. There's there's so much more to do, but this isn't the setting. Um, but I'd like to do a um, a quick review of the Purgatorio next week, and then go on to the Paradiso. So, start the Paradiso. No, going into it, it's going to be very difficult. It's it's far more abstract, far more theological, conceptual. It's far more conceptual than it's in what's going on um, than either the Inferno or the Purgatorio. So it's it's going to challenge everybody's minds, everybody's intellects. It's a it's just a tougher read, but. Um, but I can say this, and, I, and I'll underscore the point here at the end of the Purgatorio, because it's going to be one of the major points here at the end, that what Dante's showing us is um, an intellect infused by faith. So Virgil has, um, in a sense, has been easy on us because he's natural reason. So in everything he showed Dante, or everything that was revealed to Dante through him in the Inferno or Purgatorio, is in accord with natural reason. It's 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 a reason we're more familiar with. It's part of our daily life. When we enter the um, heavens with Beatrice, Dante, we're we're going to go with Beatrice. She's come to get Dante. She's going to make available to him reason. She's going to make arguments again for Dante to understand. He's a pilgrim returning to God. But her reason is different from Virgil's. She sees things Virgil could not. So she's going to be, what she says is going to, and what Dante sees is going to be challenging us far more than we were challenged when we were going through things with Virgil. So just know that in advance, okay? But we'll, um, we'll do a, a review of the Purgatory and then start the Paradiso. So, um, I hope you're all starting. The, the beginning is sort of easy and it's funny and lovely, but it's it, it's beautiful. It's stunning what Dante's done. Nobody nobody has done what he does, but we'll do that. Um, for those of you who don't know, Father Father Flynn started that lecture series. It's it's on Sundays and Tuesdays. I'm scheduled on Sunday 11th, and I think this thing's now. I'm scheduled again on the 25th of April. Um, I'm assuming this is going to go ahead. I, um, I know that some of the talks were canceled, and I, I, I haven't talked with Father in a while, so I don't know what's going on. But but those of you who are eager to get back to church, just be aware that these talks are going on, and they're Sunday evening and Tuesday evening. So, um, but on the on the uh, the eleventh of April on Sunday that evening at six thirty, I hope I see some of you guys. It'd be nice to physically put a body together with these images that we've been looking at for too long. So Yeah, and Suzanne just reminded me, you sure? I'll ask next week, you know, whether you want to meet during Holy Week. It, it may be a good week to cancel, but next week when we meet, I'll ask you what you all want to do about Tuesday of Holy Week, because um, it may be a time to quiet down and or you may have activities, I don't know, with families visiting and traveling. But I'll check with you next week and we'll find out what you want to do during Holy Week. And we'll plan to pick up the week after Easter. Yeah. Or continue through Holy Week. We'll see. Okay, can all of you pull out Ash Wednesday? 
Did you all get my email today? The question that I put to you guys? Wow. Nobody? Dave K. I didn't. I we didn't get that. Wow. I didn't think you didn't any. Wow, 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 wow. Huh. I sent out a an outline again. I'll I'll do it again after class just so you can have it. It's, it's on the website, so you can go to the it was I checked it, it was on the website. But I sent out an email saying that and I also um, asked a question. But let me so if you didn't get it, let me ask this question now. I'm sorry Melody's not here because I know um, she really struggled with that last week, um, as I think everybody did, but she 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 really turned it over pretty strongly in her mind. Um, I want to ask this question and spend a minute on the beginning, and then I'll just quickly summarize the first and second parts and then read the third part with very little comment. Um, yeah. Um, I don't know what to say. I'll, I'll check the email. Um, but you remember that Ash Wednesday begins the first section with a, a number of stanzas, and most of them begin with dependent clauses, and we talked about them last week. Here was my question to all of you. Here, hold on for a minute. I'm gonna I'm gonna see if I can get this. Hold on, hold on. Oops. God bless. Sorry, this is taking a minute. Um, sure what to say here. Um, well, let's... Um, here's... here. Can you, can you all hear me? Yes. Okay, here, here was my note. Um, that goes to Ash Wednesday. Faith, hope, and charity are supernatural virtues. They're divine gifts from God, divine in nature, not things we can give ourselves or others unless given to us first. Hope, then, is a good thing. But what happens in a post-Christian world in which supernatural gifts have been torn apart, divided from each other, and romanticized, temporalized, rationalized, brought down and transformed into earthly things by the language we use to describe them. We hope for a bike on Christmas. Joe says to Marie, I have faith in you. And lovers say they love each other one week and find themselves bitter enemies the next. What's happening with those supernatural virtues? 
Remember I've said that faith means we have faith when there's no reason to have faith. Hope is only real when there's no reason for hoping. Love is real when there's no reason for loving anymore. In the opening stanza of Ash Wednesday, Eliot does not say, I hope not to turn. He's taking a positive action based on a supernatural gift not to do something. I hope not to do something. But it rests on his hope. He doesn't say that. He says instead, because I do not hope to turn, he's negating a hope or speaking of its absence or omission. What's he doing? And why does he say in stanza three, because I cannot hope to turn again? Why can he cannot hope? And I called everybody's attention to the Boethius um, circle and the still point at the center. And my question was, what's it like when one approaches that center aware of a calm or stillness present and still finds himself in a whirling, turning, darkened world? seeing the light and still finding himself affected by the darkness. Um, so, did, could everybody follow that? Here, let me just go to the, the poem, if you'll, if you'll pull it out and take a look at it. He begins, because I do not hope to turn again, because I do not hope, because I do not hope to turn. Remember saying, desiring this man's gift, that man's scopes, no longer strive to strive. Why should I mourn the vanished power of the usual reign? The usual reign in the world, it can be Trump, it can be Biden, it can be Nero, it does, whoever it is. The vanished power of the usual reign. Whoever had that power had it for a time and then it's gone. So if we put our trust in that power, we're putting our trust in something that's going to disappear. Same thing in the second stanza. Because I do not hope to know again, because I do not hope to know again, now he's dealing with the mind, not the will, the infirm glory of the positive hour. The infirm glory of the positive hour. Because I do not think, because I know I shall not know, the one veritable transitory power, because I cannot drink there, where trees flower and springs flow, for there is nothing again. He goes through this. So in both of those stanzas, he's saying, because I do not hope to know, because I do not hope to turn, the vanished power of the usual rain, it's going to be gone one minute. The infirm glory of the positive hour, all of us have had moments, I'm sure, where we feel absolutely healthy where for a moment it's as if we're lifted out of this world um, and we feel okay, everything's right. Um, it's as if we're okay, the sins don't bear us down. And two hours later, heavy, dark again. Because I do not hope to know again the infirm glory of the positive hour. Because I cannot drink there, where trees flower, if that's heaven, that's um, an eternal stream. People drinking from that stream um, um, will have a different experience from people drinking water from a stream here on earth. So my question is, what is Eliot doing? What is he, This is a moment of conversion. How do we understand those 
the stanzas, these dependent clauses in this opening. He's not saying, I hope not to do things, because if he says that, he's hoping to not do something. He's turning to a positive gift, a hope, to find the strength to take something on. Here he's not saying that. He says, because I do not hope to turn again, because I do not hope, because I do not hope to turn, desiring. Okay, so take up my question. What's Elliot doing? And why? Remember, he ends this because he says, because these wings are no longer wings to fly, the air dry, teach us to care and not to care, teach us to sit still, pray for us sinners now at the hour of our death, pray for us sinners now. He ends with the last lines of um, the Hail Mary prayer. So, Tina, do you have your hand up? Your hand, did you have your hand up here? I'm going to mute you all because I'm still hearing sounds, but you guys jump, you guys jump in um, whenever you want, okay? What's he doing? What's Elliot? What is, this is Ash Wednesday. He's entering what? What's, what is he taking on at, in this moment? Okay, since there's no answers, I'm going to just recall quickly the second section because we read it. Lady, three white leopards, you remember he's talking about the bones, dead. Um, all of the images are taking, or most of the images are taking from Ezekiel when God calls on Ezekiel to prophesy to Israel. And Israel's presented in terms of these dead bones. They're all dry. They're dead. They're dismembered. Israel has abandoned God, left him, and, and fallen into ruin. It's one of its many apostasies it's suffering from. Um, but God says to Ezekiel, go prophesy to them. And he describes the white, the leopards who are eating the bones. And leopards in the Old Testament are generally instruments of God um, um, used to answer evil. He's, he's addressing the second section to a lady, I think, um, in terms of literary allusions, it's Beatrice. He's, and, and he doesn't name her because it would lose its effect. Um, it, but, but I think readers are hopefully aware of Dante when they read Eliot because he's, he's his greatest influence. And you all remember that Beatrice is the one who led Dante to God. Here he, let, he leaves it um, generally open. Um, and um, describes her as being beautiful in a white dress, and um, she honors the Virgin in meditation. We sh she shines in bright. I, I think it's Dante's way of showing that somebody, somebody um, leads us to God. There's always somebody, um, and it's a woman of great purity. That somebody, whoever that person happens to be for any of us, leads us to God. Um, so God asks him to prophesy, and it ends with the ladies withdrawn in a white gown to contemplation in a white gown. Let the whiteness of bones atone to forgetfulness. 
there is no life in them. As I am forgotten and would be forgotten, so I would forget, thus devoted, concentrated in purpose. And God said, prophesy to the wind, to the wind only, for only the wind will listen. And the bones sang, chirping, with the burden of the grasshopper saying. So it's a, it's a, it, the stanza is about a, a moan of recovery, of, of, of being regenerated. The bones of, are, are coming to life because of God's help. And then it ends with that description of um, Mary in the beatific rose. We're going there. That's where we're going. At the end of the Paradiso, we will see the beatific rose, the imperium with all the souls in heaven with Mary um, at the center. And it describes her in terms of oxymorons, contradictions, tensions. Lady of silences, calm and distress, torn and most whole, rose of memory, rose of forgetfulness. It's all these apparent contradictions centered in her um, in the garden where all loves end, terminate torment of love unsatisfied, the greater torment of love satisfied. It's an interesting contradiction because the, the implication seems to be that very often loves that are satisfied here may actually include a torment that will be relieved in heaven. There's a difference between carnal love here in our world and heavenly love. It's, it's, it's going to be at the focus of what we do with Dante tonight. Um, end of the endless journey. End of the endless journey. Um, word of no speech. Grace to the mother for all the garden where all love ends. And then it goes back under the juniper, um, juniper tree. That's an allusion to, it could be to Elijah or Jonah um, with the gourd. Um, this is the land which he shall divide by lot, and neither division nor unity matters. This is the land. We have our inheritance. So we're left um, is of a, we're given a depiction of a people who have been given an inheritance, but they're not there yet. They're still here. I'm just going to read the third section now and leave it with no comment because I want to go back to my question. In the third section, he's, it's a purgatorial section. It, it, it's a direct allusion to Dante and the purgatory. Because remember, after each lab, Dante ascends the mountain by stairs. The angel takes off the, um, the pea, um, standing for the sin. He gets lighter and lighter as he goes up, but he's, he's carrying sins that are being purged. So Eliot's drawing on that allusion, that, that um, Dante's text here. Section 3, at the first turning of the second stair, I turned and saw below the same shape twisted on the banister under the vapor in the fetid air, struggling with the devil of the stairs, who wears <coughs> the deceitful face of hope and despair. There are those two things again together, hope and despair. And the, the, the same shape may be Dante looking back at himself. It may be another soul we don't know. At the second turning of the second stair, I left them twisting, turning below. There were no more faces, and the stair was dark, damp, jagged, like an old man's mouth driveling beyond repair. 
or the toothed gullet of an aged shark. At the first turning of the third stair was a slotted window bellied like the fig's fruit, and beyond the hawthorn blossom in a pasture scene, the broad black figure dressed in blue and green enchanted the Maytime with an antique fluke. Brown hair is sweet, brown hair over the mouth blown, lilac and brown hair. Distraction, music of the flute, stops and steps of the mind over the third stair. It's as if we're there. The whole force of these free, first three can, or, um, sections is to draw us into this experience, whatever we're going to call this. Um, distraction, music of the flute, stops and steps of the mind over the third stair. We're still there. Fading, fading, strength beyond hope and despair, climbing the third stair. And it ends, Lord, I'm not worthy. Lord, I'm not worthy. But speak the word only. That's the word speaking words. It's calling on Christ to say something. And remember, at the end of the first section, um, he begins it because these wings are no longer wings to fly, but merely vans. He, it's an image of loss and defeat. You know, whatever power he had before this moment of Ash Wednesday entering the church, whatever it was, they're no longer the wings he once had because these wings are no longer wings to fly. Um, Tina, can you turn your, uh, there, you've got your hand up and I, we keep hearing noises from your mic. I think it's... That was me, Bob. Oh, sorry, my oh, dog was barking. Sorry. Um, because these wings are no longer wings to fly, but merely vans to beat the air, it's as if everything we do is meaningless. The air which is now thoroughly small and dry, smaller and drier than the will, teach us to care and not to care, teach us to be still. So, um, after all these because stanzas, he turns to God and says, and pray to God to have mercy upon us, and pray that I may forget these matters that with myself I too much discuss. So, so the poem is in many ways a penitential poem. It's, um, it's setting out a condition in the world um, that he carries with him as he enters the church and um, turns away from the life that he once lived. But here's my question. I'm going back to the questions that I asked a few minutes ago. Why is he beginning with these clauses these dependent clauses, because I do not hope to turn again, because I do not hope, because I do not hope to turn. What's he doing? He is not saying, I hope not to, because in that case he would be basing whatever he's going to do or not do on a, with a, on a supernatural gift, on hope. He's not saying that. What's, what's going on in these opening stanzas? Sound like you were just. Isn't uh, uh, isn't Dante saying? I mean, T. S. Eliot saying that uh, by saying he does not wish to turn again, like by turning he means uh, like uh, the center is 
heaven, Mary. As you go away from the center of the circle, the very peripheral region right. of the sphere is constantly turning, turning, turning. Yes. Because of the repeated, repeatedly committing sins. Isn't he saying that he doesn't want to be like so, you know, heavily buried under the sin? He wants to get out of there and wants to move toward the center? Yeah, yeah, I do. It's a good, it's a good way of putting it, Kay. Yeah, I, at, the, at the point I want to underscore here, because I think people misread this poem badly, even, you know, even teachers, ac um, academics who study this stuff. Um, the, remember the question that I, I'll, I'll send you the email, apparently I didn't send it or something happened, but in the email I said, faith, hope, and charity are supernatural virtues, right? They come from God. We can't give them to ourselves. They're divine. So... Those are gifts that are divine in nature. They're beyond our reach. God gives them to us. We can, we can give them, live them, once we've received them from him. Remember, Dante's only undertaking this journey because of graces given to him. Mary sent Lucio, Lucio sent Beatrice, Beatrice, Virgil. And remember when he got to purgatory, these dreams are graces when he got to St. Peter's Gate, it was only on the basis of the eagle who took him up. That what Dante's showing us is that what's going on in us when we have experiences like that are graces. Even if we can't name them or always feel them, they're there. Graces are subtle. They're just very... The Holy Spirit is very quiet in what he does. Um, we ordinarily think of supernatural graces as gifts. But what happens to those gifts in a post-Christian world, a world that's no longer Christian, that's received those virtues and turns away from them? So do we have people saying, I hope I get a bike for Christmas. I hope I get a bike for Christmas. I have faith in you, Jane. You know, who are, I have faith in you. Not God, I have faith in you. And I love you says one lover to another. Do all those words carry with them the weight of a supernatural gift? I no, think they don't, because we're taking words that were created to express supernatural gifts, and we're using those words to, to, uh, to define our aspirations or our, our attachment to worldly, feeble, uh, you know, temporal things that can't, they can't do anything but pass away. Yeah. Good for you, Mike. Right on. Um, Anna, go ahead. I've, I've got a strange configuration for you, but you've got a hand up. Go ahead. Hi. Hi, everyone. So, yeah, the love can I, am I on? Well, I hear your voice. Can you show your image? Okay. It's, it's not a sign it, I... Because I don't, I don't see it. Okay, now I see it. Wait, by the way, before you, who are you? So I was going to introduce myself. So, Go ahead. <laughs> I know, you're like, we've been meeting in this small group and then someone just shows up. So 
Maria Cecilia invited me. Oh. I don't see her name, so I don't know if this this is the right group that she was talking about. But she said poetry and scripture, um, and it sounded like you're talking about poetry. And then you said faith, hope, and love. So I figured it might it might. So Maria Cecilia. It, huh? It's the right so group. I'm the correct class. Yeah, so yeah. I figured this this might be the one. Um, Wait, before you go any farther, when you see yeah. Maria, you give her hell from me, and ask her where she is tonight. Um, that's yeah, that's so for I, me. I emailed her and she, I asked her. I told her that I I was in a different meeting and is it all right to join late? So I thought she would already be here because she's like, oh yeah, it's okay. Come late. Come on in. <laughs> so I don't know where she is. Yeah, Anna, but go ahead though. Love, I, come on, go I ahead. Heard that love, at least, um, I guess the ancient languages that would have, um, I don't know if it's Hebrew or Aramaic or something else, but love, apparently, uh, for us in English, we're limited in understanding what love is because they love had filial love, um, agape love, and there's another one. I guess the Eros love, or at least three, yeah, three yeah. different kinds of love, right? But I in English, we're limited because we only have that one word. And then, like you're saying, in this post-Christian society, we love things which are not to be loved, like pizza. <laughs> so we've changed. Wait, language. I love pizza, and I don't think I'm committing a sin in loving pizza. <laughs> <laughs> True, but we've taken we've taken things that were so that had supernatural meaning, like you said, and also supernatural value but in our language we've um um what's the word we've like really watered down what the meaning should have been and so we use it even though and even us christians we get sucked into the way the world thinks and yep. talks but yep. sometimes we need to take a step back and remind ourselves oh wait a minute when we say awesome we're saying we our god is awesome so how are we going to call anything else awesome Right? So there's a lot of things in our language that yep. we use. Yeah. 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 But um I, but I, it's it's catching my attention now the more I'm like growing in faith. <laughs> yeah, good. Good for you. Um let me go back to my question because um I what Anna and Michael both of you what both of you said is is right to the point. Um that we take we use words to describe divine realities but temporalize them. We bring them down. And I, I thought Mike um, just nailed it. I thought your description was right on, Mike. But, but, but to take what Anna and, and Michael are saying now and go back to my question, what is Elliot saying? And I don't want to spend too much time now because we've got to get to Dante. There's a lot we have to do. But just briefly, if we can, what's he doing then when he says, because I do not hope to turn again, because I do not hope, because I do not hope to turn where is he? This is the beginning of Lent. It's Ash Wednesday. And if you take what Anna and Mike just said um, and apply it to his use of those words, where is he taking us here in the beginning of Lent? Or the, the speaker is there, whoever, you know, Eliot. But he's drawing us into the poem to put ourselves there to figure out what's going on, to enter into it. Because I do not turn, because I do not hope to know the will, the mind, time and place, control. Where are we being, where is the speaker going 
And if we're going with him, what does it mean for us? Where are we going? Because these wings are no longer wings, but merely vans to beat the air, I pray to God to have mercy upon us, that these matters with myself I too much discuss, too much explain. The infirm glory of the positive hour, those moments when we think we're okay, and an hour later we're back. The vanished power of the usual rain, the power that was seen so secure one moment, gone the next. Where are we? Where is he taking us? Talk. It's just an odd way of asking the question. Mine? We'll put it differently. Where? Yeah. Let me let me suggest this because um, I I think people can so misread this. Um, I I. He's speaking to an, a, a post-Christian world, a non-Christian world anymore, but he's using, he's referring to language, he's using a language that was deeply Christian at one point. Faithful to love are all gifts. I think what he's saying is, and he, he will say it clearly in the four quartets when we get there, um, we'll, we will pick up the quartets again. Um, he says, not to hope because the things we hope for are the wrong things to hope for. It says, teach us to be quiet and still, not to hope, because the things we hope for are the wrong things. I think he's using all this, if, if my clause, I mean, to go back to the question that I asked last week, if, if we were to, to um, supply an, independ or a, yeah, an independent clause for all these dependent clauses. Anna, do you have the poem with you? Do you or did, did Maria show you that we've got this site with all these materials? Do you have Ash Wednesday in front of you? No, no. No. Just know that it's it's um, it's online. If you go to the literature's prophecy, there's all the written things, so they're available there. But anyway, it's because it's a hard poem to hold on to in your head. So okay. you're you're at a you're at a, something of a loss here. But <laughs> but what he's doing is is giving us a series of stanzas, um, um, beginning with dependent clauses. Because I do not hope to turn, because I do not hope to turn again. It goes on like that. And I asked everybody, what's the independent clause for those statements? Supply it. And last week I suggested that um, the independent clause is, I'm surrendering my will to Christ, um, waiting on him. So I think what's behind these opening stanzas, because I do not hope to turn again, because I do not hope, you know, the second one, because I do not hope to know, is that he's getting us past this habit of the world to take Christian virtues, because when we do, we, we use them too lightly. We've gotten into a habit of using them without even seeing the loss in what they mean. And I think what he's saying is, uh, because I do not hope to turn again, I'm surrendering my will to God. That it's an act of complete surrender, Pray to God to have mercy upon us. Pray that I may forget these matters. He's got to get out of his head. He's got to get out. Remember Christ in, the, in, in front of a Pilate? Absolutely silent. It was a complete surrender. He shouldn't have been there. He had every reason to say no, but he was glad to be there because he was taking on our sins. But it involved a complete surrender. 
absolute obedience to the Father. You'll say that in the garden. Um, what's his words? Um, Take this from me if it's your, no, will, but it's your in, will, not mine. No, but it's, um, why are you doing this? And I can't remember, but it's those words. We're, we're going to touch on them in the, in the purgatorio. What's, I think what Dante's, or Eliot is doing is taking us to a dark night of the soul. It's the St. John experience of the darkness of the soul. That it's only when we get rid of everything and enter that darkness um, that we will really encounter Christ fully because too much of what's in us, in our heads, our minds, are in the way. So Ash Wednesday is a penitential poem. It's, it's about entering into Lent. It's T.S. Eliot's expression of what that means, um, but he's bringing together a number of traditions. One of them is Dante, and the other is St. John of the Cross, um, you know, the dark night of the soul. That there are two ways of getting to God. One was Dante's way. It's called the way of affirmation of images, by affirming images, because God made them all, we get to him. And the other is the way of negation, the via negative negativa, the way of negation. The only way we get to him is by taking away the things so that we can find out who he is and to do that means entering into a darkness. So um, each one of these sections, the one, the first one and the second one dealing with the lady with the leopard feeding on the bones, you know, and the third one, the, the penitential stairs, the climbing of the stairs, every one of them is um, is working to help us enter a mystery. Distraction, music of the flute stops. Uh, Anna's term, pizza, <laughs> if I can use her. <laughs> um, um, you know, distraction, music of the flute stops and steps of the mind over the, over the third stair. Fading, fading, strength beyond hope and despair. Climbing the third stair. Lord, I'm not worthy. Lord, I'm not worthy. It's those moments of throwing ourselves on him in the darkness because too much of ourselves get in the way so often when we're doing other things. So let me stop with that. Next week we will do the fourth section. Um, so we have a couple more sections to do on Ash Wednesday, but we'll do the fourth section then, okay? Any questions or comments before we um, start the purgatorio? I just met. I just found the website. Sorry, like which document? What um, you what you do, Anna, is is you go to the um, homepage and then go to um, the top on content and hit it, and it'll take you down to the. It'll show all the audios for the class. And the uh, very, these are audios. Okay, so is it a particular one? No, no, no. Wait, 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 wait. No, wait. Oh. Good. It gives a list of all the audios from all the classes we've done. But at the very bottom, there's um, two sites, St. Francis and St. Elizabeth Ann Seton. Yes, I see them. And if you click on either one of them, you go into the materials, the oh. printed materials. So everything's available in a printed form there. So you've got the and audios and you've got the... How, how do I know which one is today's? Um, we're in the sixth... This is the sixth class in the Purgatorio. So when you go down to... When you go down the audios, you click on uh, Dante, and you'll, that'll take you to the audios on Dante. If you go down to the printed materials, um, go to C's, and then go to Christian Middle Ages, Dante, the Commedia, 
and the purgatorial. And then you'll see the outlines. And poetry is a separate one. Yeah, and, and, um, and there's also a separate file um, um, containing all the poems that we read. So you go in there and you'll get these poems. You'll, Ash Wednesday will be in there. Is that, does that answer your question? Do you still have a question? Um, I'm going to try to navigate it and then figure it out. Yeah. Um, uh, get my email from Maria because it would be easier to do it off the class time. Just That's true. If you have, if you have questions, because um, sometimes it just, I know it gets terribly confusing, but. Uh, yeah, but, no, but, I mean, go ahead. Just like, I was just, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Get my email from Maria. But I'm glad you're here. And um, if you're confused, don't be surprised. Dante's not easy and you're coming in the middle of something. So um, it's not going to be easy for you to follow. Have lunch with Maria and ask her to catch you up. Gotcha. Go, I mean, like, don't, don't mind me. You can go ahead wherever you were. Um... I'll, I'll just mute. <laughs> I, I'm going to mind you, but I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to do both if I can. Um, okay, the last... Just as a, as a background, because I, to me it was so appropriate, for those of you who were at Mass this last weekend, you know that the um, Gospel reading was taken from John. It was that passage in John 3 where Christ is meeting with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is saying, how can I see these things? He actually loses. I, by the way, I included, that at, I included that in the letter that didn't get to you guys. And I also included on, on the site with tonight's notes on, on Purgatory 6, the 6th six six meeting, 6th class. Um, it's the gospel reading in which Nicodemus and is talking to the Christ and saying he can't see these things. Um, how are you born again? He uses the word see. And Christ makes it clear this relates so directly with what we're doing in Dante tonight. Um, and um, Christ tries to explain to him that it's by virtue of the Spirit, moving with the Spirit, that you can see these things. It goes back to the point we were making in Eliot. If we're, if we're using language and we're stuck in the world, then the language we use is going to compromise us. It's going to compromise our sight. There will be things we don't see. And he goes on, after explaining that to Nicodemus, to say that God, this is the, this is the one passage that, in a sense, links the Old Testament with the New Testament. Both of them are there. Because the, cap, the passage is, God, the Father, so loved his people that he sent his only begotten son. So that's the Old Testament. The Father so loved us. It didn't matter what our sins were, our failings, or our weaknesses. He didn't come because we were good. Um, he so loved us, even with our sins, that he sent his son. So in that passage, Old Testament, the law, justice, and mercy, love are, are absolutely related the way they should be. Um, Christ makes it clear when he goes to the cross, he's not doing it to undermine the law, he's doing it to fulfill it. So he doesn't, he doesn't put law and love off against each other. He makes it clear that what he's doing is fulfilling the law in love, a divine love that only he can offer. 
So that was the background. It had to do with the kind of seeing that's given in a grace from the Spirit, and that bears directly on what we're doing. So let me just quickly review some of the things we've done. One, because we're about at the end of the Purgatorio, Dante's a poet, um, he's a prophet of the modern world, because he's taking his subject, Florence, which is the first commercial republic of the West, it's on the basis of that that we formed our own republic. So he's exposing that for what it is. We've been seeing that again and again in every, every canto we've read. Dante's prophetic sight comes partially from his own exile, that he lost everything. He came to see the worst things in Florence because he fought the battles over it. The Guelphs and the Ghibellines destroyed each other. They were always killing each other and driving one or the other side out. But finally, he lost it. He's writing this poem in exile, having lost everything. So the claim I want to make tonight is the Divine Comedy is um, given to us as an expression of the way of affirmation of images. It's affirming images. It's, it's through them we get back to God. We'll find our way. But that very way is based on the via negativa, the way of negations. Dante lost everything. It's why he can value them. And I think all of us know that. It's very often in our losses that something's given to us, our, a whole change in the way we look at things. Um, whatever it is we've lost, something is given to us. Um, so several of the themes, major themes that we've been dealing with, the first one we've talked about again and again, reconciling law, justice, with love and mercy. Remember, Cato says, get up, Get up the mountain, stop fooling around. You're here when they started singing with each other, Cassell and Dante. He got very harsh. And once they start their purgation, they can't look back. Um, they have to take seriously the laws and limitations of purgatory. Purgatory itself implies a justice. They've all done wrongs. The difference between them and the people in hell is they want to atone for their sins. They want to give satisfaction, to cleanse them. We'll see that again tonight in the readings we're going to do. They want to bear these sins because they know it's the only way of getting, recovering their health, their sight, who they are. The theme of sight, of learning to see, every one of the ledges is clearing a sin because each one of those sins blinds them. They all think they see very well, just the way we do. And what we learn is they don't see well at all. There's a lot in our pride, we don't see. Pride blinds us. Envy blinds us. Wrath blinds us. Oh, here she is. <laughs> Here's your friend, Anna. Um, oops, I think she's... Um, the third um, theme, which was an important one last week, is idolatry. And once again, it's related to sight. Remember that when Dante has the, Maria Cecilia, you are in real trouble tonight. You send one of your friends here and you're not here to greet her? I, I hope she has some hard words from you, Maria. Maria. Oh, no, she's all right. She, <laughs> we know better. Anna, don't cover up for her. It's good to see you. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Hi, Maria. It's good to see you. It's good to see you. Um, you have a good friend here who's joining us. You know that. Um, I hope you'll take some time with her to catch her up because 
you know, she's coming right in the middle of things. It's a hard place to come in. The theme of idolatry goes directly to seeing. Dante has that dream of the siren. We talked about it. Remember, the more he looks at her, the more power she has over him. It's the way in which our desire, this goes so directly to this theme of seeing and blindness in our pride or envy or wrath. The more we desire something, the more vulnerable we are to it. Always. And very often, the, one of the effects of desiring something is that it, like pizza or <laughs> whatever it is, um, is that we, ide- we tend to idealize it. In our first romances, I think this, I think, I hope I'm speaking for everybody. In our first romances, we, we, we idealize the other person and we see them the way we want to see them. And what happens when we find out that they're not the way we saw them is very often we get disillusioned, disillusioned, we lose our illusions. There's something sobering in that. But the point is that idolatry is one of the effects of our fall that we let our desires project out on something and make too much of them, and they have a power over it. Where does that power come from? From us. So all of purgatory is an undoing of that, that overdoing of things, idolatrizing things. Okay. And finally, poetry. We've been talking about this forever, that it's, it's very often in poetry that we're helped to see clearly. The poets help us to see something better but they do it in a way that helps form our hearts so that our minds and our hearts can become, can get together so they're not at such divisions with each other. So those are some of the major themes we've been looking at. When we left off last week, Stasius, remember, had just been freed. He completed his penance and he, he's going to join Dante and Virgil as they go um, up the rest of the mountain until they um, come to Eden. But let me stop, because I want to get to Stasius again. It was, it was an important scene. And then um, um, tackle the, the rest of the purgatory, see if we can't finish it tonight. Any questions or comments on, on what we've been doing or where we are with Stasius? I'm gonna, I want to say a word about him in a minute, but that was just a quick review of what led us to Stasius. Anna, you're not going to know this, and I can't take a lot of time on this because there's, you know, there's there's just too much to cover. Um, but um, the poem began with Dante um, wanting to go to God. He starts to climb this mountain, and he's beaten back by these three beasts. And we learned that he needs help. He thinks he can do it alone, and help is given to him. People in heaven are sending people. Virgil comes to him, and Virgil helps him. Um, but the first thing they do is have to go down. What Virgil makes clear is Dante has to learn to see his sins if he's going to atone for them, if he's going to go to a cross for them. So Virgil takes him down into hell where Dante learns to see his sins. When they come out, they come out and look at that same exact mountain again, except now they see the content of it. Um, it's, It's answering those sins. So the difference between hell and purgatory is that people in hell only want justice. They're not interested in mercy. Whereas the people in purgatory are, are, want to return to God, but they know they need help. So they're struggling to bring justice and mercy together. That's where we are. In the middle of the purgatorio, as Dante's going up, 
we just had two really important discourses on free will and love. They're, they are the centerpieces for the whole Divine Comedy. And I'm not going to go into them now because we've gone, but it would be great if you could talk with Maria. Um, the argument that Virgil makes is where, when Dante says, where do sins come from? Our God was good. God made nothing bad. Virgil's answer is the cause of evil is love. Very few people in the modern world are going to hear that. But Virgil's saying the cause of evil is love. And what he makes clear is the first three ledges, pride, envy, and wrath, are love of evil. We want some harm to come to others. In our pride, we want to put them down. In our envy, we want to see them lose something. When they injure us, we want to hurt them back. So love of evil is at the root of those first three sins, envy or pride, envy, wrath. The middle one is sloth, not loving enough, and the three upper ones, avarice, gluttony, and lust, are love, not of evil, love of good, but excessively. So the, the, the penance that's being done up there is penance um, of excessive loves. So that one way of looking at the whole of the purgatorio is that human beings are learning to order their loves. I think it's the greatest task we have on earth because our loves, whether we want to admit it or not, are generally disordered. We've got sins in us that we have to correct. So that in a nutshell is the, you know, is the purgatory. But um, just after the middle, in da when Dante meets the siren who's a, who gives us an image of idolatry, what happens, what, what they're going to face is they look at the loves above, avarice, gluttony, and lust, making too much of them, wanting them too much is when they get out on the next ledge, the, the mountain shakes, and this man named Stasius, who was a Roman poet, appears, and he's going to accompany Virgil, Dante, the rest of the way. That's where we were last week. So, um, let, me, let me turn to Stasius. I'm so sorry Melody is not here, because I know she had lots of questions about this. Um, Turn to 310. Let's go back. Actually, let's go to 301. Let's go to 301 first. This is just after Dante gets free of the siren. You remember that Lucia had to come because Virgil, as the natural man, is incapable of helping Dante break free of the siren. That's how strong those desires are. Man can't do them on his own. He doesn't, he doesn't have the power because it's a power that comes from him from his sins. They're disordered loves. They're too strong. He can't answer them. He doesn't have the strength. Remember, our original sin was against God. It's one of the reasons why we need him to answer those sins. Um, he, he and Virgil come to the next ledge, the ledge of the avaricious on page 301, and they meet this soul-doing penance at the bottom of 301. The man is prostrate on the ground looking down, and we learn that the reason that he's doing that is because it's his contrapasso, it's his penance, because he spent too much of his life wanting things. Now he has to turn away from them. His sight has to turn away. Um... I beg you, interrupt your greater task a moment. Tell me who you are and why you lie prone. 
Is there some way that I can help you in the world I left behind? It, it shows Dante's courtesy. I mean, wanting to help somebody, even though he's you know, in his body and the person's a shade. Why heaven has made you turn our backs to heaven, the Spirit said, you soon shall know. But first, a Latin quote, um, Scius quod ego fui successor Petri, he's the successor to Peter. What Dante learns is this was Pope Adrian. So he's meeting a man who was a pope. And you know up to this point, most of the popes that we've seen have been in hell. Dante's putting popes left and right in hell. Um, 302. Um, he says that he was turned too much to the world, too attracted to it, um, and, and was too undone by the sin of avarice. <coughs> On 302 at the bottom, just as our eyes, there are eyes again, attached to worldly goods, would never leave the earth to look above, so justice here, once again, this justice has forced them to the ground. Since avarice quenched all our love of good, without which all our labors were in vain, so here the force of justice holds us fast. He's bound to that law. He has to atone for what he's done. Our feet and hands bound tight within its grip. Um, 303, Dante is bent down to talk with Adrian because, remember, he's prostrate. Adrian says, why are you kneeling at my side, he asked, and I replied, your dignity commands my conscience would not let me stand up straight. Up on your feet, Pope Adrian says, you should not kneel. I'm a servant too, with you and all the others, of one power. If you'd ever understood the words sounded by Holy Gospel, neque nubent, um, which they neither marry nor given marriage, um, that is, they denied themselves. Um, you will know why I answer as I do. Do not stay any longer. Leave me now. Your presence here prevent the flow of tears. This is so interesting. Your talking with me is slowing my penance. Your presence here prevents the flow of tears that ripens what you spoke about before. He's glad for sorrow because remember, the, the, remember when we talked about the difference between envy and the merciful? The envious are glad to see people lose things. The sorrowful are sad to see them lose things. So sorrow is the appropriate misericordia. The sorrow is the appropriate response to that. I have a niece on earth by name Alegia, a good girl. May she not be led astray by all the bad examples of our house. And she is all I have left in the world. He asked her to pray. It's another instance of the souls in purgatory asking for prayers. Um... Going over, um, you remember that Stasius appears, 312, when suddenly, just as we read in Luke, that Christ, new risen from the tomb, appeared to the two men. He's a Christ-bearing image. They don't know who he is, and there's that tender exchange between him and Virgil, because remember when he learns that Virgil's the man in front of me, he bends down to try to kiss his feet. And there's shades. There's that. It's an it's an expression how overpoweringly love can be. Um, goes down to his knees to kiss his feet, <clears throat> and then there's that. I don't know what to call it of a, a love musing. It's an amused love. That um, Stasius learns that the man in front of him is the poet that inspired him to do all his work, 
Um, and they're, they're both almost in tears laughing together. Um, we learn that Stasius on page 313 did 500 years on, I'm sorry, so sorry, Melody's not here, because that shocked her. Um, he did 500 years on the level of um, avarice, but we learn later on page 318 that his sin was not avarice, it was prodigality. So the opposite sins are atoned for in the same ledge. Um, he kept too much to himself. On 320, he says, Before I brought the Greeks to Theban streams with my poetic art, I was baptized but was a secret Christian out of fear, pretending to be pagan many years, and for this lack of zeal, I had to run 400 years on the fourth circle, the ledge of sloth. So that's 900 years. There's actually, I think, around 1,100 years. He, there's 200 years missing from the time of his birth to this time, and he apparently did some time in other ledges, but he did 400 years here. Now, I want to I stop for a moment. We're going we're gonna to go on to the level of gluttony, 325 in a minute, but I want to stop. Stacy's a poet, and he joins Dante and Virgil at this moment, and we learn that he did 500 years on the ledge of avarice and 400 on sloth. He's, he's completed his penance, so he's not going to do any time on the gluttonous or the lustful. He's going to go to Eden, accompanying Dante and Virgil. But allegorically, what does he represent at this moment? Virgil, remember, was a pagan. He didn't know Christ, and he says the reason he didn't the reason he was stuck in hell is because he didn't have faith. He was a virtuous, like all the other virtuous pagans. He's not punished. He was not punished in hell. They're suffering from a darkness because they were without faith, hope, and charity. But they were virtuous men. They were good men. They're just not in heaven. Virtue can't get us to heaven. But Virgil said he didn't have faith, and that's why he is where he is. Now, at this point... This man who was a pagan was converted largely by Virgil and he's introduced to the poem and he's going to accompany the two men from here on up. Allegorically, what do we learn about the ascent of purgatory from Stasius? Remember, he got converted, he was baptized, but he was a secret Christian out of fear, pretending to be pagan many years, and for this lack of zeal, I had to run 400 years, so he has to suffer 400 years on Stockholm. Any thoughts? Remember, um, Virgil's natural reason. In a few minutes, we're going to get to the top of Purgatory in Eden, and Dante's going to be received by Beatrice. The reason that she uses to teach Dante will not be natural reason anymore. It'll be natural reason transformed by a faith. Virgil can't, can't take Dante there. He, he's incapable of teaching Dante um, what Beatrice can because he's limited by his natural reason. So Virgil's always been an image of the very best that our natural human being created good. We're, this is not Protestant. We don't believe like the Protestant that man's depraved. We believe that he was made good, he's good, he has, he's, he's wounded. That's the Catholic Church term. He's, he suffers from concupiscence. 
So Virgil's natural reason, he, he shows so much to Dante. He, Dante calls him father, master. He loves him. He's guided him this far. But at this point, a man joins them, Stasius, who was a pagan like Virgil, who was converted, and now he's going to join the two of them, and they will go up until they meet Beatrice. So allegorically, my question is, what is Dante showing us at this point, at this stage of a man's return to God? Any thoughts? Hmm? I'm confused a little bit about how Virgil with no faith can lead a person to faith. Is that is that all that strange? Well, here let me let me remember remember um, David. Um, Virgil, in his Echologues, had written that passage in which he describes this child that's going to be born into the world and who saved the world. That was before Christ. Stasius lived after Christ. There were Christians all around him, and his great love was Virgil, and it was Virgil's lines that helped inspire him. To cry, isn't it true? I mean, can can I? Is it, maybe I'm maybe I'm just speaking too much for myself here. But um, is it that unusual that somebody will hear something from a non-believer who will open a truth that will suddenly change the way you look to things, and you look back on it and think that was an opening to faith? That it was through something that happened there that got me to faith, even if it wasn't by a Christian. No, you're right there. I understand that. My question here is, what does Stasius symbolize? What does he image? If we look at Dante's movement up purgatory as a gradual process of changing, being purified, what does Stasius show us? Well, he shows us that there's hope even for our laggard. Even... And and it kind of uh, belies the uh, you know this concept kind of kind of a Protestant concept I think of of a private conversion you know I'll make my my private confession of faith which he he converted to the Christian faith but he he was very private about it did not demonstrate it evidently yeah. by his actions yeah and so they cost him in hundreds of years. <laughs> Purgation. Anybody else? Maria, what do you say? Do you have any thoughts on this? No? No? This is um, really troubling for me. It's a, it's a perplexing moment. I, I've got a couple of thoughts. Um, let me ask the question another way. Uh, and and if, if any of you are not converts, it may be just a hard thing to imagine, but maybe you've read about it. Could you say, and, and some, I know these are generalizations, so they're not always fair to everybody, but um, what would you say if you had to describe the difference between a convert and a cradle Catholic? Does something go on in a, in a convert that doesn't always go on in a cradle Catholic. What's the difference? 
It's more rational in, in the convert. Flush it out, Maria. Can you flush it out? Um, I think they, like, um, for credit Catholics, it's like we are born to it, so it's, it's more like taking for granted, and we may not think much about it, but for people who convert, they do go through a process of like really thinking about it. So yeah. it's, it's very much in their mind. And maybe in their hearts too, because it may have involved some yeah. suffering to, to make a change from one way of life to another because they realized that there was something wrong and out of that suffering comes a change. So it seems to me one of, one of the things that could go on is a greater depth of reflection and possibly some suffering that's involved. And it's not to say that credo Catholics don't suffer. I'm not saying that. But here, give, give this some thought. In the Christian Middle Ages, I mean, really think seriously about this. In the Christian Middle Ages, everybody, most people were born Christian. Unless you were Muslim or Jewish. Those are the other dominant religions. But if you were Christian, whatever your belief is, you grew up accepting that belief. You just lived it. If you were Christian or Muslim... So the Christians in the Middle, Middle Ages were largely non-reflective. There wasn't, they accepted their belief. That's what they were raised on. That's true century after century. How many people in the Christian Middle Ages read St. Augustine or Boethius or Thomas or Dante? How many people knew them? We just finished reading Boethius. I'm, I'm assuming that was a, an important read for all of you guys. Boethius is one of the most extraordinary people in the Middle Ages. How many Christians knew him? You guys do now. Once you read somebody like St. Augustine or Boethius, you reflect a lot because you see, through your powers of reason, depths of things you didn't see before. And it's interesting to me that, that it's interesting to me that Stasius has been on purgatory for eleven hundred years. So I, I can't put this definitively with a lot of conviction, but I'll, but I'll throw this out. It seems to me that we're asked to see a couple of things here. One is we learn um, from Virgil. I'm, I'm not sure if I have the passage here. We learn from Virgil in this section here with Stasius how much Virgil came to love Stasius when he didn't know him. Because Juvenal, who died after Virgil, did know Stasius. When Juvenal goes to hell, he tells Virgil about this man. And Virgil says he came to love him, admire the work that he did. So you've got this over time. We, we learned that some of the things that might have happened 500 years ago are going to have an effect ages afterwards when nobody would have ex expected them to have that effect. Um, people will say things. We know this in our own experiences, that something will have been said that, that could be a sunburst to us in some way. But here in these scenes involving Stasius and Virgil and Dante, we're watching three men who have had an extraordinary influence on each other who could not be the men that they've come to be without each other. Impossible. I, I'm speaking personally now for myself. I cannot imagine my life I can't imagine, I wouldn't be doing this with you guys. I can't imagine my life, I mean, without Christ, obviously, without Homer, Virgil, St. Augustine, Boethius. They have so enriched my faith 
that I cannot, I cannot imagine my faith without them. So what, what Stasius represents in some sense is a reflective aspect of Christianity, that there's this rich tradition. Remember, remember this, no mystery exists. Hold on to this, everybody. No mystery exists where there's not more to be known. Mystery, on the other side of mystery is not chaos or confusion. No mystery exists where there's not more to be known. How much have we entered into the mystery of our faith through men like Homer, Virgil, St. Augustine, Boethius, St. Thomas, Dante? So in some sense, I think Stasius is an image of a reflective Christian, and it's interesting to me that he didn't live it. How many people in the early stages of their faith fully live their faith, have the courage to take it to the world, say things that are not going to be liked? John Paul used to say over and over and over again, be not afraid. Why did he keep saying that to young people? How many people have the courage to step forward when everybody's going to not like what they say? So I think Stasius is an image of this... Um, that on the on the way to on the way back to Christ, he's an image of a of a baptized Christian, but one who has not fully lived his faith, but brings powers of reflection to his faith that lots of Christians who don't reflect don't have. Is that clear? Because remember what we're talking about in the same way that we saw when we went into hell, that Dante's descent into hell is. It's a journey in which we learn to see the real nature of sin. I mean, really what it does, what it is, the effect on us. The voyage of, the journey of purgatory is, a, a, it's a vision of, of, of the soul being purified by bringing justice and mercy together. So that people, people are learning to see themselves more truly as they are, not in their illusions, and having, and they're only, they can only do that through Christ's help, through God's help, through his lights, because otherwise we're in a darkness, right? So they're learning to see a light is being given. They're learning to see themselves. So in purgatory, we're seeing the possibility of human growth, of learning to see what's really inside and being offered the grace to help change it. And we're being given images of that, Virgil, Dante, and here's Stasius. I think something like that is going on at this point as he emerges. Any other any thoughts or comments or let's go on here because I want to get to this. It's too important. You know that when they come to the next ledge, the ledge, this is I think this is wonderful. The next ledge, well, by the way, on, on 325, they meet Fouries, and I want to touch, I just want to read the descriptions because I think it's, a, this is the ledge of gluttony. And Dante d doesn't even recognize his friend when he's recognized all of his other friends before because he's so emaciated. 325, this spark rekindled in my memory the image of those features now so changed, and I could see again Farisi's face. Please forget about the crusty scurf. Discoloring my sickly skin, he begged. Pay no attention to my shriveled flesh. 
Go down. When death was on your face, I wept, I said, and now the grief I feel is just as great, seeing your face so piteously disfigured. Remember, they're described as having hollow sockets. They're having to starve themselves because in, in life they ate too much. Um, go down on 325. All of us here who sing while we lament. There's that oxymoron, that contradiction. By the way, that's Christ on the cross. Why have you forsaken me? That's the, that's the line I was... Why have you forsaken me? It's going to be described here in... Oh, here, on this page. Follow this. What page? 325. All of us here who sing while we lament for having stuffed our mouths too lovingly. I'm going to confess one of my sins here. Eating too much. Um, where's, where did Anna go? Having too much pizza. Um... Make ourselves pure, thirsting and hungering, the fragrance of this fruit and of the spray that trickles down the leaves stirs, stirs us a hungering desire for food and drink. And not just once, as we go round round this road, our pain is constantly renewed. It's a constant temptation to drink and eat. Did I say pain? Solace is what I meant. That in their penance, in their suffering... They're experiencing a gladness because they're correcting their wills. And, and notice the point, the point to which this is all going. For that same will that leads us to the tree that has all these temptations for them to eat and drink, led Christ to cry out joyously, Eli, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying he cried out joyously. Because what was in Christ on the cross when he was suffering was a joy for bringing salvation to his people. Remember the line I spoke a while ago, the line to Nicodemus, for God the Father so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. So in, in Christ, there's no way to separate a joy from the suffering. Paul says that in all of his letters, over and over and over again. He says, I take a joy in suffering for Christ. Because he's correcting his own will. Now going over to 329. They're on the level of gluttony, interesting, and they meet um, Bonaguenta, who's a poet. 329. There, he pointed, Bonaguenta goes the Lucan Bonaguita, the one behind, see that face withered more than all the rest. On page 330, Bonaguita and Dante meet. Bonaguita asks Dante about the poetry because, remember, this is, a, this is a pivotal time in history. Dante's writing about Florence, which is the prototype of our modern, our regime, but it was the time of a new poetry. It was a revolution in poetry. It's called the, the Sweet New Style, Vita Nuova. It's Dante's poem, The Sweet New Style, that something entered into Western poetry at that time that hadn't existed in the same way before. Uh, Bonaguita says, um, A woman will greet you in your exile. She will welcome you. Remember well this prophecy of mine. And even if the words I muttered are not clear, future events will clarify their sense. But tell me, do I not see standing here him who brought forth the new poems that begin? This is a line. <coughs> Sorry. 
This is a line from Dante's La Vita Nova, his, the poem that he wrote under the inspiration of seeing Beatrice. He was so taken by her that he had to write this poem. And in one of the phrases, he has this description. Um, Tell me, do I not see standing here him who brought forth the new poems that begins, ladies who have the intelligence of love. I want to stop on that line just because I, I love it so much. So when you hear men and women politically speaking today on either side of the spectrum, is what you hear the intelligence of love? Or is it an intelligence motivated by something else? Are you all following me? Everybody looks too quiet. What Dante is showing is that what so inspired him and Beatrice is, is, and the other women who are with her is, is that they revealed the intelligence of love, that the way they use their minds reflected a love of virtue, not envy, power, ego, wealth, you know, whatever else. What came through her voice was a virtue. And it so inspired him that he wrote this poem. It, it's the change in his life because remember, We've talked about he saw in Beatrice an image of the Trinity. That was a changing moment for Dante. But notice what Dante says. I said to him, I am one who in love inspires me, takes careful note, and then gives form to what he dictates in my heart. Is the meaning of that clear? Dante writes his poetry in response to what the Spirit tells him to write. That's why there's this prophetic aspect running through. Now hold on to that line just for a minute. Hold on to the line. When we get to um, the level of the lustful, on page 342, Dante meets Guido Guinizelli on page 342, he comes to the level of the lustful and he sees two rows of sinners. One of them are homosexuals who've committed sodomy and the others are heterosexuals who've been too lustful. And this is important to see because remember the last time we saw homosexuals they were in hell. Dante's making it clear that homosexuality isn't in itself damnable. It's like all the other sins that we've been talking about. It depends what people do with them. Here he sees two rows going in opposite directions. Um, on page um, 341, as they um, arrive on the level of the lustful, he says, um, a, a voice spoke to him. I would have tried already to explain if something else unusual had not just caught my eye. Straight down the middle of the blazing road facing this group, going one way, another band of souls was on its way. I stopped to stare, amazed, for I saw shades on either side making haste to kiss each other without lingering, and each with his brief greeting satisfied. So the, one of the contrapassos is that they kiss each other quickly. Both groups. Because the, homo, the heterosexuals are there because they still acted out of lust, even in their marriages. While the homosexuals were unlawful. So that they're going in opposite directions because of opposite tendencies with respect to law, but they're answering it by a quick kiss because they're learning to restrain their passions. Okay. 
On 342, Dante's responding to one of the voices and he says, I climb to cure my blindness, for above a lady has won grace for me that I may bear my mortal burden through this world. It was Beatrice's love that started this all. The bottom of 343, the soul introduces himself and he says, as for my name, I can fulfill your wish. I'm Guido Guinizelli, here as soon, for I repented long before I died. On 344, Dante looks at him and says, that spirit named himself father of me and father of my betters, all who wrote a sweet and graceful poetry of love. Guido was the founder of the sweet new style. That's why Dante calls him the father of his poetry. Okay? Guido is going to look at another soul at the bottom of 344, who's Arnette, Danielle. Or not Danielle. My brother, I can show you, he said, he pointed to a spirit up ahead, a better craftsman of his mother tongue. And on page 345 at the bottom, Dart, Arnott Dar Danielle speaks to him. He says, he readily and graciously replied, Ton melabellis votris, he goes in Latin. Actually, he speaks in a dialect that's peculiar to him, and the translator can't get it, but it's in dialect. Now, why these three poets? Bonaguenta, on the level of the gluttonous, right? Bonaguenta, Guido, who founded a school, and Arnett Daniel. Why all these poets? Why is Dante gathering them here? You guys wouldn't know this unless you knew something about the background. I sent you a sheet last week. It, it's one of the sheets under the purgatory, um, under, I think, the fifth or sixth class. Bonaguenta was a major influence in the troubadour poetry, but the poetry that he wrote was extremely cerebral and idealistic and platonic. It denied the body. Denied the body. Arnott was um, a, a great poet, but there was a pornographic element in his poetry. I mean, it, it, what it did was arouse passions that were carnal. What's the difference between those two poets and the schools that they founded, that had these large foundings, these schools of poetry, and the poetry that Dante writes? Because this is a radical moment in the history of Western civilization. And it's a radical moment for Christianity and what's about to happen in the modern world because in the modern world we're going to lose it all. When we get to Shakespeare, we're going to enter a post-Christian world. But what's the difference between these three kinds of... What's Dante doing at this point? Why is it so important? Remember, we talked about the importance of poetry. The hell begins. The first canto into hell is deals with Francisco and Paola, and they're reading a book of adult. Remember, it's the the uh, Arthurian romances, and Guinevere and Lancelot are having sex. It's an adulterous moment, and um, Francisco and Paola. It says, and that that day we read no farther. They stopped. And we know what they were doing, and it's in that moment that her husband comes in and kills them, and they end up in hell. At the foot of purgatory, when the souls get off the boat, and Casella and Dante meet, 
the first thing they do is embrace each other and start singing until Cato comes up and says, what are you guys doing? Get on. You're supposed to get to God. So Dante's been critiquing art all along. What's he doing here and why? What's Aristotle's definition of virtue? It's at the center of our Catholic faith. It comes from St. Thomas who got it from Aristotle. What is virtue? Well, let's say you're a political figure, because I, I know these figures on our mind all the time. If you're a political figure and you've got a political problem, there's two extremes that are possible, right? You can be apathetic and indifferent and do nothing. And you can go to an extreme of passion, and your passions can get out of control in what you do. What's the mean between those two things? Prudence. Who said that? Is that you, Anna? Yeah. Yeah, prudence. go can flesh that out, can you? Um, I think prudence is when like what you're saying, right? So even if I'm passionately seeking justice because of all these injustices and all these images that I've seen and all the atrocities that have been, um, I mean, there's a lot of things to be angry about, right? Yeah. But if I want to be a Catholic, and it's very hard, I imagine, to be Catholic and a politician, <laughs> if I want to be Catholic and a politician, somehow... By the grace of God, I guess, right? I have to pray to God and ask God for His grace so that that anger, that violence, and that um, bring me to prudently tap into charity, right? Or yeah, something yeah. something that brings closer to God, which is love, yeah. so that any response, if I'm a politician or even just a regular person, so that my response is to people, to situations, come from charity rather than my passion, which is my anger, yeah. right? At the, it could be justifiable. I mean, the, the anger can be understood, right? Like, oh, but the reaction needs to be a prudent reaction, yeah. right? <laughs> Anna, can I, I, I want to take a second with this longer, if you just hold up with me for a second, can you? Um, I, so I would have said exactly, I mean, you, you started separately, but you put them together. I would say the, to virtue would be to not give in to either of those extremes. And what you'd want to do, particularly if you're interested in justice, is that you would want to be prudent and bring a love to what you did, because if your concern was justice and not for yourself, it would be for the good of others. That's what charity is. So let me ask this one more question, just because of the way you put it. Could you do any of that, the way you're describing, because I so enjoyed the way you described it. Could you do any of that without any suffering yourself? Without taking on a um, cross your own, on yourself? I think there's suffering, and it depends on um, how advanced the person is or mature as a Christian. I'm not that person. 
But the more selfless the person becomes, the more mature the person becomes, then that person isn't really dominated by their passions. But a lot of us are not, I mean, at least where I still am and the people I know, we're, we're still selfish. And so I need to deny my passions. And that's where my suffering comes yep. in. It's yep. my self-love and my selfishness. Yep. Yep. So it's suffering, but in a different kind of, like the person, you know, different suffering from the person who's in hospital right now because of yep. physical pain. Yep. But it's still suffering because I'm learning to, like I think you said earlier, those disordered loves that we have. Yeah. We need, to, if we can learn them here on earth to release or be detached from them, that's the surgery we're going through, right? <laughs> and the suffering, yes, yes. So, um, to go back to my question about poetry, you've got a poetry that's very idealistic and cerebral and platonic, denies the body. And you've got a poetry that's partly pornographic and uses the body. What does Dante, what, how does Dante's poetry differ from either of those extremes? Now here, hold on. We're going to find out when we get up the Paradiso. In the middle of the Paradiso, this is going to be interesting. Milton's Protestant response to this, absolutely different. Milton hated um, Solomon. In the middle of the Paradiso, there's going to be a gathering of groups of people in heaven, and they're going to exalt the body because we're different from angels in having a body. And everything about our world just works to destroy it. Dante's saying that we've got to be careful of those two extremes of poetry because one's too idealistic. If you put somebody there, they're not dealing with the body. And we are who we are because of our bodies. We're not angelic. We're corporeal creatures. If you go to the other extreme, you get pornographic literature. You're going to be drawn into those passions. So, in one sense, this is anticipating what we're going to get to the, in the Paradiso, but he's already making it clear here. The best kind of art is that art which is moved by the Spirit that's a celebration of everything we've been reading. This descent into hell to look at sins, this is sent up purgatory to see the way of correcting them, and this poem, Ash Wednesday, to stand in that place, this goes to Dave and Kay, your comment, to stand in that place by that still point, knowing you're still in sin, I mean, it's very much what Anna was saying a second ago, you've got shadows all around you, the dark forces are everywhere, but and you're you're not you say I I cannot hope to turn again. You can't you can't go to I hope I get a bicycle for Christmas. I hope I hope I faith I you know. That the only response is a surrender to God, and an and an entrance into the dark night of the soul, because it's only there that one gets free of all that we're talking about. So here at the, at the top of Purgatory, Dante is giving us several traditions of poetry. He's not catechetical. He's not lining them up. He's not saying here one. He's giving us it dramatically. They're just rendered as people. But if you know anything about these people and you look at them, you go, holy cow. Here's one at one extreme. Here's at another. And Dante just said um, about himself, 
I am one who when I love, when love inspires me, not hate, not vengeance, not grudges, um, not vengeance. Vengeance is not justice. 90% of the movies coming out of Hollywood today deal with vengeance. They're not justice. It, it's just sickening to watch. What it does is encourage people to take vengeance, not justice. I mean, it goes to Anna's answer a minute ago. How, can I mean, I, I can name a few politicians. They're very. It's just a small hand that I believe really get close to a virtue. But the number is really small, really small. Dante says, I am one who when love inspires me takes caref careful note and then gives form to what he dictates to my heart. He moves by the Spirit. He takes, Anna's word was prudence, you know, whatever pain that, that takes. Now quick, we've got to, I've got, because we're, we're not close to where I wanted to be, but here quick. Um, on 342 and 3, remember we've got these two groups. The one group is calling Sodom because they were the Sodomites, and the others are going the other way, and they exchange these quick kisses. And then Dante is going to ascend the steps to go back to Eden. Um, he and Virgil, this is so funny. Um, oh, wait, by the way, why is fire an appropriate contrapasso for lust? Remember, and we've been looking at the contrapassos at every ledge because each one has, we, the nature of each sin is different. And we have to see it for what it is if we're to try to work with it, to deal, deal with it. Each ledge has its own contrapasso. The contrapasso at the level of the lustful is fire. So it's on the inner edge of the mountain. There's a flame of fire. And the two, two rows of sinners have to pass each other, but they have to do it very delicately because if they get too close to the fire, they'll burn. And if they get too close to the edge, they'll fall off. So it's a very narrow ledge. Now remember this. Every one of the sins has its root in pride and envy and wrath. They're all carried up. Those are love of evil. The other ones are love of good too much. The higher Dante gets to the, to the end, the finer the work. So the souls passing each other have almost no room in which to work. Because why? Because lust is the one sin that most resembles love. Yeah? So here's my question. <laughs> Why is fire an appropriate contrapasso at this level, for this ledge? You know, starving for one, giving up things for another, whatever blindness, I mean, all the things we've looked at in, you know, in our journey of purgatory. Why is fire appropriate here? Because lust is fire. It just overtakes you and you burn with it. Can you hear Suzanne? Can you say it louder, Doc? By the way, Anna, this is my wife. She didn't want to make an appearance today because <laughs> she didn't comb her hair before class. Or anyway, this Doc, this is Anna. Who's but this Anna? This is Suzanne. So why? Because lust is fire. It burns you. It burns within you. Um, I think it's perfect. That's half of it. Did you all hear? Did you all hear, Suzanne? I mean, fire is a perfect image of lust. I think that's only that's the 
hard side of it, the negative side of it. What's the positive side of it? The fire of pure love, when the Holy Spirit's fire? Yep. Yep, exactly. It's cleansing, it's purifying. This is the really interesting thing. Um, we talk about God's love as a fire, the Holy Spirit. I mean, Anna hit it right on the, you know, right on the head. Um, the fire, that's why it's so close and why it's so fine, because lust in some ways seems like love. It's so close. Um, but the love of God purifies us. Here's one of the interesting things about hell, and one of the reasons that it's traditional to picture, to depict people in hell in fire. That isn't the way Dante does it, you know that. Because when you turn away from the light of God, that light turns into a fire. Refusing it makes it a fire. That is, it hurts you. To turn into it is to be purified in the light, burned, cleansed of our sins. Water and fire are, are, are often two of the most common images of purification in the Bible. So... Um, when they when they're on the ledge, um, um, they they have to go through the fire to get to the stairs. Remember to get to Eden now because this is the last ledge. So <laughs> Dante's there on the ledge, looking at the stairs that he has to climb. Um, this is it. The Beatitude on page three forty seven. Beate mundo corde, blessed are the pure of heart. They've been purified. They're ready to return to Eden, to, to return to that place we once had and lost. Um, at the bottom of the page, 347, believe me when I say that if you spent a thousand years within the fire's heart, it would not singe a single hair on your, of yours. And if you still cannot believe my words, approach the fire and test it for yourself on your own robe. Just touch it with him. Dante doesn't want anything to do with it. This is so good. This is purifying. How many of us want to be purified? Dante's looking at this fire and saying, I know. Dante's looking at it and saying, I want nothing to do with this. He doesn't want to touch it and get near. Because who wants to go into fire? It, it burns. We tell our children, take your finger away from them. What, what right-minded person wants to put their finger in a fire? But I stood there immobile and ashamed. Dante can't move himself, although he knows on the other side of this fire is who? It's Beatrice. 348, he said somewhat annoyed to see me. This is, I mean, this is the anger. By, by the way, I want, I didn't, it wasn't the time, Anna, but, but one of the things we've talked about, anger itself is not a, um, a sin. Anger itself is not a sin. Wrath is. Christ was angry. It wasn't because he was not virtuous. Anger is the rectifying virtue. It's actually the one most rectifying of justice. Anger is a rectifying... The modern world hates it because nobody wants to be opposed. Um, but Virgil, a number of times, has gotten... How about rage? Rage is a sin. I mean, come yeah. on. That's Wrath and rage are... Those are excesses. Remember, we hold on to that mean because there's no way to look at rage as a... It's not an excess. Virgil's gotten angry, upset at Dante a number of times. Here he's annoyed. I'm so, I just want to point this out because it's just another sign of how human Dante is with all this. 348. He said somewhat annoyed to see me fixed and stubborn there. Now don't you see my son? 
Only this wall keeps you from Beatrice. As Pyramus, about to die, heard Thisbe utter her name, he raised his eyes and saw her there. The day mulberries turned blood red. Just so my stubbornness melted away, hearing the name which blooms eternally within my mind, I turned to my wise guide. He shook his hand and his head and smiled as at a child won over by an apple. And he said, well then, what are we waiting for? Entering the flames ahead of me, he asked of Stasius, who for some time now had walked between the two of us, that he come last. Once in the fire, I would have gladly jumped into the depths of boiling glass to find relief from that intensity of heat. He comes on the other side and he enters Eden. Um, We're going to have to stop here, but here I want to just... Dante comes out on Eden and what he sees is this beauty. Matilda, a woman we'll have to talk about next week, will greet him, but it's the freshness of air. It's a pristine forest. There's no damage. There's no harm. We're returning to our beginnings. In our end is our beginning. In our beginning are our ends. He's there. Important, seriously important questions to take up. I thought we'd finish tonight, but we're not um, 350, growing desire, desire to be up there was rising in me with every step I took. I felt my wings were um, growing for the flight. Once the stairs swiftly climbed, we're all behind and we were standing on the topmost step. Virgil addressed me, fixing his eyes on me. You now have seen, my son, the temporal and the eternal fire. You've reached the path, the place where my discernment now has reached an end. What else can he teach him? He's returned him to the natural world that we lost. I led you here with skill and intellect. From you here on, let your pleasure be your guide. I want to come back to this. Behold the sun shining upon your brow. Behold the tender grass, the flowers, the trees, which here the earth produces of itself. Unlike those lovely eyes rejoicing come, until those um, lovely eyes rejoicing come, that is until Beatrice comes, which tearful once urged me to come to you, You may sit here or wander as you please. Expect no longer words or signs from me. Now is your will upright, wholesome, and free, and not to heed its pleasure would be wrong. I crown and mitre you, Lord of yourself. Remember that line on Stasius that we talked about when Stasius arrived and he said on page 313, the will to rise alone proves purity. Once freed, it takes possession of the soul and wills the soul to change its company. Augustine said, love and do what you will. But how many of us do it, you know, in real love? But when that moment comes, whatever it is, what we do will be right. Remember the distinction that Virtue made in that discourse on love. Love is the cause of evil. It's an evil will. Nobody put those souls in hell. Nobody. They put themselves there. God didn't put them there. They put themselves. When the souls rise here, when Stasius arrives, rises on 313, it will to climb before, but the desire high justice set against it inspired to wish it to suffer as once it wished to sin. It knows we have to take this on. We have to do these things if we're to get better. We have God's help. So here Virgil is saying, I crown and mitre you, Lord. That is, he is priest, prophet, king. 
St. Augustine's words were, love and do what you will. When you're in love, whatever you do will be good. And we've talked about the virtues, I mean the extremes, how easy it is to, you know, to miss to go to one. But Dante now arrives at Eden. Um, what's going to happen is Beatrice is going to approach him. And I don't want to go into it because we don't have time. And I, I just don't want to press this. So Beatrice is going to come. She's going to get in, come in an allegorical train. There will be figures and lights. Um, it's an image of the history of the church. The gospel writers, the prophets, all the writings, they'll all be allegorically there. The whole of our tr tradition, our church, is there. Bringing Beatrice in a in chariot. She is a Christ-bearer. Something will happen there that's sort of amazing. But she's going to pick up what Virgil started, and she will bring Dante to his end. I, I don't want to go over the, 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 the section, the scene where... Virgil and Dante separate. It's a, it, to me, it's always been a sad scene, but I want to. I really want to focus on why does Virgil have to go back to? He's a, he's this lovely man. He's a really good man. He's brought Dante this far. He inspired Stasius to his conversion. Stasius is going on. Virgil's got to go back. What is is this a cruel-hearted Dante? What is Dante doing with his father, his mentor, this man he loves? What does it signify that Virgil has to go back at this point? Where are we? Where are we at this point as we're about to move into the heavens? Okay. I thought we'd finish tonight, but we can't. So next week we will finish the Purgatorio and start the Paradiso. Um, any comments um, or questions or thoughts before before we end? Because... Virgil has uh, no faith. We need faith to be able to move on, to go to heaven. Yes, Mike, yes, yeah, good, Kate. Okay. But, but my question is, what does it say about reason? I tried to suggest something a while ago, it's what allegorically what Stasius represents. Why does he come into the poem? What does he show us about the soul? What's happened allegorically? What? So, if somebody's on a journey of faith and they're moving towards God, allegorically, what does Stasius image for us on that journey? Because um, Virgil inspired him; he went beyond Virgil. Um, we know from Virgil that no man can go to heaven without faith. This is mad, but interestingly, when we get into the heavens, we're going to see God going back in time and bringing people forward who didn't know faith. Because remember, for God, God has no past or future. That's got to be absolutely clear. God, For God, there is no past or future. So we're going to reach a point in the period, all sorts of miracles are going to take, or what seem to be miracles are going to take place in it. We're going to see amazing things. One of them is that God goes back and brings these people who, one of them is from the Aeneid. One of them's from, Vir, one, one of them from Virgil's book. It's a man named Riphius, who was one of the men who died in the Trojan War. Why does God bring him into heaven? He didn't have faith. So, what's happening at this point when Virgil goes back? Allegorically, how are we to understand what's happening when Stasius comes into the action? And that at this point, when Virgil leaves 
and Beatrice is going to receive him. What's happening inside the human soul that's invisible, we can't see very well, that Dante's making visible? Let's pick that up next week. Anna, I hope we see you again. It's good to see you. Um, it was very interesting. Thank you. Yeah. Um, be patient with that friend of yours, will you? She, she, be patient with her. Okay, you guys. Um, see, see you guys. See you guys next week. Bye. Thank you. Yeah. Good night. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Yep. Wow. I don't know. It disappeared fast.